Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, I pointed out we are in Matthew 26. It's been a little while since we've been in this chapter. I think this is our third study in this particular chapter. And as you may recall, if you've been with us, you know, we're talking about the last couple of days now of Jesus's life uh, before he would give his life. And of course, he would rise again and and kind of appear back on the scene for the next uh, 40 days or so. But these are the last few days of his life. We saw some things even in this chapter where one of his disciples came And in an act of worship, she took her very expensive ointment and she anointed the Lord with it. Jesus said that she did this in preparation for my burial. It was very expensive, but it was a a wonderful act of worship on her part for her Lord in doing so. We also saw there was another disciple whose name is Judas. And you're familiar with the name. Very few of us name our kids Judas. We might name our Rottweiler Judas or something like that. But we're all familiar with Judas. Judas agreeing to betray the Lord. Betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, very little money, and betraying the Lord because he had given up on the Lord, he was done with the Lord, and moving on to the next thing, and he was a man of greed. And we looked at him in this chapter, and then last week when we were together, we saw that Jesus took the familiar celebration of the Feast of Passover, and he gave sort of new symbolic meaning to the event that he took this event, which was commemorating essentially the the children of Israel, their exodus out of Egypt, and Jesus gave it a a symbolism which spoke of the body being broken, his body, the blood being poured out being his blood, and said, and we were forever told to do this in remembrance of him until he comes. And so we looked at that last week. And as as that event ended, as the Passover ended around verse uh, 29, Jesus and his disciples leave there, and they go to, as we we spent some time very initially considering, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is probably a five-minute walk at the most from wherever Jesus was, uh, because it's that close to the city of Jerusalem. It's just outside of the temple wall. It's a part of, it's kind of at the base of the Mount of Olives. And we've learned in other places that Jesus would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem, but he would go down there three times a year for the feast. We, we would have to assume. We know that he would go down there occasionally for the feast, and the mandatory feast brought you down there three times, and so we assume he went down every time. And with his disciples, when he would go down there, he would often go to this Garden of Gethsemane. It was a secluded place in the midst of the hubbub of Jerusalem, particularly during the feast, lots of activity, and it was a quiet place, a place they can go and kind of be by themselves. Jesus would teach his disciples there sometimes. He would pray with his disciples there, we learn. And so he goes back to that particular place, and it's going to serve as a place for him to commit himself ultimately to what the next 10, 12, 15 hours were going to bring, where he would give his life as a ransom for many, as he's been saying. Now, being such a quiet and secluded place, it also turned out to be the perfect location for Judas to betray the Lord. And so you may recall we looked at that the chief priests and the elders, basically a week uh, before these events, five, six days before this event, somewhere for us around chapter 23 or so of Matthew, they had had enough. That's it. We're done. Let's figure out a way to kill this guy. That was their plan. Let's just kill God's Messiah. Let's figure out a way to kill this rabbi because he's drawing all sorts of attention to himself. But then they added, but they needed to be careful about how they did it because the crowds loved this guy. And so they needed a quiet place, a secluded place, and the Garden of Gethsemane works out to be a perfect place 
for Judas to betray the Lord because it was that quiet and secluded place. And so he left the Passover meal, you may recall. We looked at that. And he went to make preparations. He went to the chief priest and he said, I know where Jesus is going to be. Now, one of the commentators I read suggested that perhaps he went back to the Passover meal uh, with the soldiers and he wasn't there. Ultimately, he eventually will end up back at, uh, or at, I should say, the Garden of Gethsemane. Because, all right, he's not here at the Passover meal. I know where he is. He's at the garden. And so he goes to the garden, and that kind of brings us up to the context of where we are. So I'll read a few verses we looked at last week, and then I'll continue right into where we're going today. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My sorrow is very excuse me, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, new material. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh is weak, Peter. Verse 42, again, for the second time he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so as I, I pointed out earlier, the, this garden is right there. It's right near where they were. It was a, a good place for them to go and have some quiet time. Judas knew that he could find the Lord in this particular place. It's here in this garden that Jesus will make the decision, ultimately, to put aside his own will so that he might take up and follow after the will of his father. I used this sort of picture last time. He, here in this garden, he makes the decision that he will drink the cup of God's wrath, that God's wrath, which will be poured out on sin. He's not a sinner. It's going to be poured out on the sin of others. Jesus said, I will drink that cup, and in its place, I will give them my cup, my cup of fellowship, the cup that he enjoyed for all of his existence. Well, his existence is eternal. For all of eternity, that he enjoyed unhindered fellowship with his Father, that cup of fellowship, the exchange. Now, we read here in verse 36, Jesus separates himself from the 11. He said, you guys stay here. I'm going to go over there and pray. Notice in verse 37, he took three of the 11 with him. And so as we read in the verse, it says he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. The two sons of Zebedee we know in other places are James and John. And so it seems as if Jesus had an, an extra closer relationship with those three. There are other instances where it's just those three that are together. And so Jesus leaves from the 11. He takes those three, and he says to them, it says, I should say, verse 37, that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38 says, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. I think a lot of us, many of us, have experienced sorrow. Jesus says here, it says here that Jesus' sorrow was even 
unto death. The word that is used in verse 37, which says troubled, is a word which means to be weighed down, that he was experiencing coming on him the weight of all that was about to come his way, and it was weighing him down. It was troubling him. He was sorrowful at it. And certainly, you can look at the weight of what was coming his way, and from a human perspective, we can certainly understand the weight of the physical that was about to come his way. We know that Jesus is going to go through immense physical torture during these next 10, 12, 15 hours. We know that Jesus would go before these trials, and out of nowhere, people would just start hitting him. No effort to be able to prepare himself, just getting hit from one side or the other. We know that his body would be scourged. They would take that whip and they would rip essentially the meat off of his back. We know that he's going to go to a cross. He's going to hang on that cross and essentially suffocate to death up there. Isaiah speaks of this whole situation and says that his face was marred beyond human recognition. It speaks of him and says, he was as one of whom we turn our face away. If you've ever you know, looked at something gruesome, an injury, blood, something like that, some of us, no big deal. Others of us like, no thanks, I'm going to go get coffee or whatever. At the, but for some of us, we can't see it. Well, that's what Isaiah is describing, that people would look at his face, which had been pulverized, and they would turn their face away from it because they couldn't look upon it. And he would go through all of that physical, and no doubt there's a, there's a sense of apprehension toward that, He would also go through emotional pain as he would essentially be left to stand all by himself because of all all of his disciples would leave him, as he would find himself sort of in the middle of an angry crowd of people, and then as he would find himself being mocked and jeered, and oh, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come on down and show us you're the Messiah, and all of that, hanging naked from a cross as people wagged their heads, the Scripture says, below him. Certainly there was an emotional toll that all these things were going to take on him and he was experiencing. But as I I think I pointed out the last time, I think most significantly what was troubling the Lord and weighing down the Lord is that the sinless one was about to take on himself the sin of the world. And he was about to, in doing that, experience a separation, spiritual separation from his father, which he had never once experienced before. Some of us have a little bit of an idea of what that might feel like. We were unbelievers. The Lord entered into our lives. He saved us. We, we recognized our need for that Savior, and we turned to him for salvation. And we know what it was like to sort of be separate. And then we're beginning to walk with the Lord, and things are going great. And I love the Lord, and he's so wonderful. And then somebody cuts us off driving. I got an amen over there. All right, someone cuts us off driving, and we're like, and we, we speak tongues against them uh, of something. Not exactly sure what that was. And we experience again in that moment separation from God. We've just sinned. Something came out of our mouth. And then we're like, oh, Lord. And we, we kind of experience it. We feel it. And we're like, I'm so sorry, Lord. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I did that. But we're used to it. Jesus wasn't used to it. Jesus never experienced separation from his Father. And he was about to. And it's weighing on him. He's sorrowful and troubled. It's, it's a heavy uh, burden certainly to bear as the sin of the world is about to be placed upon his shoulders. Now notice what he says here. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus is willing to bear this. And notice the next words there. He adds, not as I will, but as you will. 
So he's willing to bear all that is going to come his way in the next 15 hours, but he prays this honest prayer. If there's any other way, any other way for what? Any other way for humanity to be saved other than my having to give my life in this particular way, then let this cup pass for me. And again, but not as I will, but as you. And as I pointed out, there is no other way. And that's, that's proven by the fact that Jesus is hanging or does, will hang from a cross. There is no other way. The sinless one actually becoming sin so that those sinners could actually become righteous. Isn't that something else? The sinless one becomes sin so that we as sinners can become righteous. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And that can happen only in one way that the sinless one gives his life on our behalf. And so he prays this prayer if there is any other way, and there is no other way. And so Jesus will have to give his life. Jesus will have to lay down his comfort, his safety, lay these things aside to accomplish the Father's will. And he'll have to go to a cross. Now, that's the initial prayer. Excuse me. That's the initial prayer. Following that, notice Jesus returns to those three disciples. Verse 40 says, and he came to the disciples and he found them <coughs> he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, "So you, could you not watch with me one hour?" Here's Jesus agonizing in prayer about all that is about to come upon him and his closest three disciples are actually sleeping. Can you imagine how rude of them, isn't it? You probably have never fallen asleep during prayer, have you? I'm sure some of you I remember as a new believer trying to kind of get the whole thing down of reading my Bible each day, praying and stuff like that. And often I would, uh, side of my bed, I would kneel down and lay my head on the bed, you know, my forehead on the, the edge of the bed and, or the couch. And couches are really bad because they got those little like corduroy things. And then your face has the corduroy thing or whatever. And, and you wake up and you're like, prayer time this morning? Yes, prayer time or whatever. Uh, I was just at a prayer retreat the other day, uh, last weekend. And it was the middle of a Saturday. We'd been praying Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It was the middle of the day on a Saturday. And one of the ladies had a really nice voice. And it was like your mom reading a book to you. You know what I mean? And she had this lovely little voice. And I'm sleeping or whatever right next to her. Or so. so it happens, certainly so. Uh, and you've probably been there as well. Um, and so these guys, they fall asleep during this time of prayer. I have to imagine... Because a little bit later, it's going to say their eyes were very heavy. Like there was, and now it's late at night, and that causes our eyes to get heavy and, and so on. But I, I have to imagine there's a spiritual component of what's going on as well. That there's this great spiritual battle. As it says in the book of Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so I imagine there's something spiritual that is going on as well here. But these guys, they can't keep their eyes open. Notice, though, it's all three guys, James, John, and Peter. But notice what Jesus does. He calls out Peter. And so he says to him, so Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? Now, that doesn't seem very fair. What about everybody else? Why are you calling me out? Or whatever. And, of course, as parents, we would respond, I'm working with you right now. You know what I mean? And and so did you do it or didn't you? We're going to talk about it or whatever. But, you know, it almost seems unfair that he would call out Peter which causes me to think there's a reason why he's addressing this with Peter. You recall it was Peter, just about an hour or two ago, that was insisting that though all others fall away, he wouldn't. 
There at the meal, Jesus said, hey, this hour, all of you are going to fall away from me. He quoted the verse in the book of Zechariah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Peter said, what? They all might. I'm not falling away from you, Lord. I love you. I'm devoted to you. I'd be willing to die for you, he says. And Peter, or initially the Lord says, look, Peter, all the others are going to fall away. Or excuse me, you're going to fall away as well. The rooster's going to crow this afternoon or this evening three times, and you will have denied me those three times. That's how many times he's going to deny. Three times the rooster's going to crow before it happens. And Peter, more forcefully, look, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I won't. And Jesus says, all right, we'll see. He didn't get into an argument. He said, well, we'll see. And here we are now, two hours later, an hour later, and Peter can't even watch and pray with the Lord. He, he was the one to die for him, but he can't even watch and pray with the Lord. And so the Lord says, Peter, could you not, as it's, as it's worded there, could you not watch with me for one hour? Now, I don't think the Lord is sticking it to Peter. You know, sometimes we like to stick it to people, especially when they said, man, I'll be there. You can count on me. Oh, I thought I could count on you. And we like to stick it to him or whatever, some friend you are or whatever. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think Jesus here has a look on his face of like, you're such a jerk. I hate you. I don't think he's like angry with Peter. I think what's going on here is something we've been seeing throughout the book of Matthew. When an opportunity comes to teach a lesson, Jesus seizes that opportunity and teaches the lesson. And so many of the stories we were looking at in, in the book of Matthew over the last year or so that we've been looking, many of the times it's, it's an event which is occurring randomly that becomes the feature of that particular chapter. So it's not as if Jesus, now he's different, he knows everything I know, but it's not as if he kind of wakes up that day and, all right, these are the three major events we're going to be doing. I've got to check these off the list because I've got some lessons to teach. It's sort of they just develop. And I think this is one of those that just sort of came up. We might use the phrase a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment where Jesus can teach Peter some things in particular. James and John, you can listen in and you can learn, but I have something I need to talk with Peter about. Now remember, earlier in this night, Peter wisely executed self-doubt. That was when Jesus brought up the phrase about somebody betraying me. And each one of the disciples said, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I going to betray you? And I pointed out that self-doubt is good, it's healthy, it's the one who thinks that he stands, is the one who should look out because he's going to fall. So that was maybe three hours ago. A little bit after that, let's just say it was two hours ago, rather than exercising self-doubt, so he's over here doing great, he swings all the way over here, and he exercises self-confidence. Now, I think there's a place for self-confidence in some things. Come on, you can do it. Don't, don't give up. You can try or whatever. There's certainly a place for that. But let me reword it. Rather than saying self-confidence, let me just work it. Confidence in self. Now, that's more dangerous sounding, particularly when we're talking about spiritual things. So initially, you have Peter over here, self-doubt. Oh, my gosh, Lord, I, I need your help. Is it me? Would I be, do you want to do it? And you swing all the way over to this side now. Lord, I would never. I would never. And so here now, this fella is in this dangerous place, this confidence in self. And again, to quote 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, lest anyone who thinks he stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. Peter is about to fall. And it's that self-confidence, the great amount of self-confidence that's going to lead him to come crashing down. He thought that he could stand, but what he discovers is what I think we all need to discover, is that in his own strength... He can't. 
and the Lord is going to use this for good. Jesus knew this was going to happen. He told him it was going to happen. This particular thing here is just the beginning of the fall that Peter's going to go through that particular evening, and Jesus is going to use it as an opportunity to teach Peter now that it has happened. So he says to him about watching and praying, you may not enter temptation. Notice, he said, Peter, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the lesson that Peter needed to learn, that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I remember when I first came to know the Lord, I was about seven, well, I was 17 years old. And in that first 10 months of my walk with Jesus, it was essentially my walk with Jesus. And finally, after just about a year, a little less than a year, the Lord brought me to a place of breaking me that this walk with him wasn't going to be accomplished by my own determination. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be a good boy, Lord, and I promise you this and I promise you that. And what the Lord did was he allowed me to fall. He brought me to the end of myself. He showed me. He revealed to me, and I'm so grateful that he did. But he revealed to me, your spirit is willing. Very different from how you were a year ago before you came to know me. Your spirit is willing, but you're trying to do this in your own flesh. And your flesh is weak. You can't do it. That was the lesson. I remember where I was. I was on the farm that I used to work on. And I had to watch the kids that particular evening. And so sometime in October of 1988, where the Lord began to just speak to my heart and say, your flesh is weak. You're trying to do this in your own flesh. Have you ever done that? You ever tried to walk the walk of Christ in your own flesh? Now, here's one thing I've discovered. We can do that for a little while. I'm pretty good at it. I didn't curse at anyone. I didn't cut anybody off in my car. I didn't steal anything from anyone. We can do it for a little while. Some of us, a little more moral than others. We can do it for three weeks, four weeks, a month or whatever. Some of us, three hours, and that's it. We come to the end of ourselves or whatever. But the point is, eventually... Every one of us will come to the end of ourselves when we're trying to live the life of the spiritual man or woman in the flesh. And our, our spirit might indeed be willing, but our flesh is weak. And so that's exactly what the Lord says to Peter in this moment. He says, Peter, look, you need to take this moment, this wrestling, this struggle that is going on inside of you, and in this moment, you need to make it spiritual once again. You're, it's fleshly right now in your own human strength, but you need to make it spiritual again. That's why I think he says to him, watch and pray that you would not enter into temptation. Peter, you need to get yourself back into the prayer closet, so to speak, and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Somebody has said this, that the spiritual battle is often won before the battle even comes. The spiritual battle is often won before the battle even comes. But oftentimes what we want to do is the battle is coming, the armies are coming at us, and oh, God, help me. And we want to pray in that time. But the prayer needs to happen before. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. That's why I think it's important to start your day prayer and in the Word. Prayer and in the Word to start your day. Now, I know people have different ideas, and I'm not a morning person, whatever it may be. Well, here's what I found. I am so desperate for that time with the Lord of watching and praying with him, I don't want to waste it on eight hours of sleeping. You see what I'm saying here? So I don't want to go to bed feeling great at 10 and wake up kind of cranky at 6. I want to have that time at 6 to just meet with the Lord, ready myself for the day that is ahead of me. Can I just say this, though? Please, let's all agree we have to have time with the Lord daily. 
We have to take that time with the Lord in prayer. We have to take that time in the Word. We should take that time in fellowship with others, even if that's interacting through the phone or whatever it may be, if you can't gather together with others. Because that's sort of our spiritual food that enables us to kind of walk the walk that we need to walk with Jesus Christ. And often, though, what we do is say, well, you know, I was at church on Sunday. We had a big meal on Sunday. He went on and on and on, you know, or whatever. And we think, well, I'll eat again next Sunday. I can't, I don't think any of us here would go a whole week and just eat on Sundays, physical food. And yet oftentimes we try to do that spiritually. Or we get a little snack on Wednesdays or something. Every day we need to come back to the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so allowing the Lord to do that work here. And so here's Peter trying to walk in the flesh, excuse me, trying to walk spiritually according to the flesh. Jesus says, look, man, you need to take this time now to pray. Believe me, there's some things coming on your way, Peter. You need to take this time to pray. Instead, Peter is taking the time to sleep. As we we see there, verse 42, and so again a second time, Jesus goes away, he prays, he says, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, then your will be done. And then again, he went back to the three men and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Now notice something about his prayer. It's very similar to the first prayer we read. But in the first prayer, Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass in the first prayer. Here now, we have this statement where he is saying, Father, if it cannot pass, unless I drink it, you will be done. It seems as if there's sort of a progression where initially it was like, Lord, if there's any other way, let it happen. He got his answer, and now he's coming back and saying, all right, Lord, since there is no other way, et cetera, et cetera, and going from there. And so it seems like Jesus is going through this process in prayer. And again, as I said last week, he may have drank the cup at Calvary, but he decides to drink the cup here in Gethsemane. He commits himself to the will of his Father. Again, you notice there he says, if it can't pass unless I drink it, well, then your will be done. Verse 43, once again, he returns to find his disciples sleeping. We read there, again, he comes, found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy, 44. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples. He said to them, sleep and take your rest later on, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, for my betrayer is at hand. So not a lot of details on this third time. He goes away, once uh, prays the same thing again. Third time he comes back, finds them sleeping. This time, however, Jesus wakes them up. So the first time he woke them up, second time he lets them sleep. This time he says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. He says, get up. And he rouses them from their sleep. He wakes them. He says to them, the hour is at hand. He says, my betrayer has arrived. Verse 44, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, with him a great crowd and with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, verse 48, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. So these words, my betrayer is at hand, they're still hanging in the air when coming around the corner is Judas. And as it says in verse 47, a great crowd of people with swords and with clubs. The the apostle John in writing about this event makes it a little more specific. 
that it's not just a great crowd, but John says it is a band of soldiers. That term band was one-tenth of a legion of Roman soldiers. A legion was 6,000 individuals. So you have 600 people, a band of soldiers, a military cohort, 600 people with clubs and torches and swords and lanterns and so on. They come out now to arrest Jesus. Apparently, the chief priests and the elders didn't want to take any chances. This is our opportunity. We're going to all fan out. We're going to encircle this place. We're going to close in on them, and we're getting this Jesus, and we're getting him tonight. And then send, as we see there, 600 people to do so. Now, rather than Judas just coming in, coming around the corner and saying, there he is, Judas goes right up to the Lord. And he comes alongside of the Lord, and he gives a traditional greeting that would have occurred in that culture, even for men, where a man would kiss uh, the person he is greeting, the other man on the cheek, or a couple times on each of the cheeks uh, of that person. And so he had given them this uh, sign The one I kiss, it says, is the man, him you shall seize. And so going up to Jesus and utilizing that prearranged sign, he goes up to the Lord. He says, greetings, Rabbi. And as the verse says, he kissed him. Now, it's interesting. The the sign was, the one I kiss is the one. And the word there for kiss is the one I go up and I give a kiss to, one kiss. What it says here, where it says, greeting, Rabbis, and he kissed him, It's a different word that is used, and it's a word which means to kiss again and again and again and again, to kiss profusely, uh, to kiss demonstrably. This was the sign, and he wanted to make sure everybody saw this particular sign. And so he's kissing the Lord again and again and again. I wonder also if there's an aspect of something going on in Judas's heart where he's like, what am I doing? Now, Judas, we know, is sorry for what he did. We'll read about it a little later. But it was not a sorrow which led unto repentance. And he would go out and destroy himself, the scripture said. And so I wonder if part of this kissing profusely that is going on is there's a sense of remorse about what's happening. But either way, it is a sign, and now the soldiers know who it is. Notice this about the Lord, just an aside, that the Lord is indistinguishable from all the rest. Now, I imagine Jesus looked different from Peter or whatever in some sense, but Jesus isn't floating He's not glowing or something like that. You wouldn't come on a scene and know immediately it's the Son of God in the flesh or whatever. He was a normal guy. And so there needed to be a sign that distinguished him from the others. And so the sign is the kiss. Verse 50, notice Jesus says to to Judas as he's kissing him again and again, he says, friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on him and seized him. Remarkably, Jesus calls Judas friend. Isn't that something? I mean, I, I, I didn't expect Jesus to say, you know, are you here, jerk, to do what you, you know. I didn't expect him to say something like that. But I, I could certainly see Jesus not saying anything to this guy. He'd say, just do what you got to do, or something like that. But he calls him friend. And again, I said it last week, I think if Judas would have repented, that the Lord would have taken him back. And so he says, friend, do what you have come to do. And then I imagine those words just cause Judas to sort of pull back and slowly back away and the soldiers moving in and they capture the Lord, they seize the Lord and they're going to begin to bring him to trial. Now, we learn some other things in the other gospels about this interaction. It's not recorded here in Matthew, but what we learn in the other gospels is that Jesus says to the soldiers, uh, who are you here for? And they said, we're here for Jesus. And he said, I am. And they all fall back like, oh my gosh, because that was a statement of deity. 
And so they all fall back down there. And then they get themselves, I guess, back up. And, they, and he says, so who are you here for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm he. And he said, if you're here for me, then let all these other ones go. Referring to his own disciples. Let all of them go. Again, there's that scripture. You strike the, she- the shepherd and the sheep would scatter. And so he sort of negotiates the release of all the others in this little interaction that's not here for us in Matthew. And they agree, okay, so everybody can go. But there's one disciple that's not content to go. And we read about him in Matthew 26, 51. It says, now behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, John tells us, he rats on Peter, he snitches on Peter. Uh, John tells us it was Peter that did it. John wrote 35 years after the fact, so I guess he figured, you know, what's that, uh, that law that passes? Yeah, Peter's okay or whatever. And so he tells us that it is Simon Peter that actually does so. Another one of the versions we learn, I believe it's Luke, we learn the name of the servant, that his name is Malchus. And the fact that we know the name of this guy is likely an indication that he was known to the believers later on, that he himself became a believer. And Peter cuts his ear off. You may not be familiar with the story. Jesus is like, what is going on here? And he picks up the ear, he puts it back on the guy, and he heals the guy. Now, if your ear had gotten cut off and Jesus put it back on you and you were good to go, do you think you'd become a believer too? Yeah, probably so. And so this fellow Malchus, he becomes a believer. And there's Peter standing with a bloody sword. Now, Peter doesn't get arrested. I imagine because there's no evidence he did anything because the guy's ear is right there on his, ah, we're moving on, whatever. But there's an aspect of what Peter does that's pretty noble, okay? One guy against 600 people. I'm going to do something, you know what I mean? I got my sword here. Most guys probably carried around a dagger of some sorts or a sword, uh, particularly in Jerusalem when the crowds would come, so would the riffraff. And it would be an opportunity to kind of rip off some of the, the tourists or whatever, carry money in their pockets. And so it's not unusual that Peter has a sword. We know an instant at the dinner a little bit earlier, and, like, Jesus brings up this idea of a sword. And Peter's like, I got one, but I got two. You know, like, oh, that's plenty, you know, Jesus says, or whatever. that. But he pulls out his sword. He cuts off the guy's ear. Certainly it's noble. Again, trying to take on 600 people says a lot about Peter and his commitment to the Lord. But this is not the Lord's way. And here's Peter trying to accomplish what he believes to be a spiritually good thing to accomplish, but in his own way and in his own flesh. We'll fight our way to victory, but that's not the Lord's way. And so notice what the Lord quickly says, verse 51. I'm sorry, this is in Luke chapter 22. The Lord quickly adds there, no more of this. Now stop. We're not cutting people's ears off anymore. Everyone, Anyone else who put out a sword, put it away. No more of this. He heals uh, the young man uh, or the servant, as it says there. <coughs> and then again, in, in Matthew 26, 52, he says, put your sword back into its place. He says, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. All who live by the sword will die by the sword, especially when the odds are 600 to 1, that all who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. And notice Jesus reasons with his disciples. Verse 53 of Matthew, he says, do you think I cannot appeal to my father And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Don't you think I could appeal to my father and he could send 12 legions of angels? Now, the Jewish people didn't have legions. 
It wasn't a word that they used really to describe anything in their culture, but they knew the word because the Romans had legions. And a Roman legion was a military group comprising 6,000 men and 700 horses. 6,000 men, 700 horses made up a legion. I told you earlier that a band was one-tenth of a legion. And it was a band that came out to get Jesus. And so Jesus here, when he uses the word legions, the only thing he would have in his mind of what a legion is, is the Roman example that he sees, 6,000 men, 700 horses. And so Jesus says, don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels? Now, 12 times uh, 6,000, 72,000 angels. Don't you think I could call down 72,000 angels, 800 uh, 8,400 horses to protect me, he says. Now consider the magnitude of that statement. When you consider in the Old Testament, there was one angel that came and killed 185,000 people in an evening. One angel killed 185,000 in one evening. What do you think 72,000 angels could do with these 8,400 horses as well? So the point is this. If Jesus wanted to defend himself, Jesus could have defended himself. But notice what he says in verse 54. But then, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? If I defend myself, if we all take up swords, if I call down angels from heaven, how will the scriptures be fulfilled? Again, remind yourself of this. None of these things are out of the Lord's sovereign control. It kind of may appear that way, that everything is just spinning out of control, and if only Jesus didn't go down to Jerusalem this year. If if only he had a cold and he had to stay back and miss it, then none of these things would have happened. That's not true. None of these things are spinning out of the Lord's control. They may appear that things are falling wildly apart, but really everything is falling exactly into place, just as the Scripture said that they would, because this is the hour for which Jesus had come, and this is the reason for which Jesus had come, that he would give his life as a ransom for others. And so he wasn't going to call down angels or call the men to take up swords to do something differently. And so Jesus, he calls out to the crowd of soldiers there that have gathered. He healed the young man whose ear was cut off. And he calls out to the crowd of soldiers and he says to them, what am I, some kind of a robber that you needed to come after me with 600 men with clubs and spears and torches and lanterns? What am I, some kind of a robber? He says to him, day after day, I was in the temple with you During the daylight, you could have come down any one of those days to come, but this is your hour. Under the cover of darkness, in the secrecy, it's your hour. You know, as an aside, one of the things I've learned to govern myself, my behavior, you know, what I get involved in or whatever, is if I feel the need that I need to do it in secret, that I don't want anyone else to know about it or whatever. Now, if I'm planning a surprise party for my wife, that's different or something. But if I feel the need that I need to do this thing in secret so that nobody else knows, that's probably a good indicator I shouldn't be doing that particular thing. If it needs to be done under the cover of darkness and I'm constantly looking around, I want to live my life out in the open. When everything that I do, that anybody can come walking in and look at it. You may not agree. Why are you waste time watching baseball? Because I like it and it's relaxing, except when the Phillies are on. Not so relaxing. When they are on, necessarily. But, you know, you may not agree with every decision I make, but if I can't do it out in the open, that should concern me. And so here you have these guys. They're coming in the evening. Notice what Jesus does here. He repeats the statement that all of this is fulfillment of the Scriptures in verse 56. And so you have these religious leaders 
and the military group that's with them that are unwittingly accomplishing the purposes of God. They don't want to, but they are, and fulfilling the scriptures and the prophecies of old. And if you go back and you look, and we've had reference to a number of different prophecies as it was written, this fulfilled, and so on, that some of those prophecies you look at crystal clear. You read it and you totally understand what it means and, and you got it. And there's other ones you're like, huh, I wouldn't have thought it meant that unless Matthew said it meant that. And you see it kind of revealed. Some are crystal clear, others a little more obscure, but one after the other, these things are being fulfilled in succession in these events, including that prophecy Jesus gave a couple of hours ago. And so in verse, as verse 56 closes, it says, closes, it says, then all of his disciples left him and fled. Exactly what he said they would do when he was sharing that meal with them back in verse 31. And so again, none of these things outside of his sovereign control. Now, these are probably, this event, the crucifixion of God's Messiah, I I think a case can be made, is the most wicked event that has ever occurred on the planet Earth. The crucifixion of the one that of God Himself coming to save sinners, and sinners' response to that is to put Him to death. The most wicked event that it could have ever occurred on the planet. But even in that wickedness, God's plans are still being accomplished, and He's going. His death is going to affect salvation for any that would that would go on to believe. It says in verse twenty-four, "The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him." It's all accomplishing. The scripture. Now let's pick up verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now verse 40, or excuse me, 57, it points out that Caiaphas uh, was the high priest and that the Romans had given him a military cohort. So he may have had some of his own sort of... Uh, security, so to speak. But the military cohort aspect, it was loaned to him during the feast when there's lots of people by the Roman government. So you got Caiaphas, the high priest, you got the military cohort, and this cohort brings Jesus, the one they had seized, before Caiaphas. We read that there in verse 57. What we don't have here in Matthew is actually given to us in the book of John, that prior to going to Caiaphas's house, they went to Caiaphas' father-in-law's house, a guy by the name of Annas. That seems a little weird to me. If I have a meeting with you, I'm not going to stop by your father-in-law's house first to chit-chat with him and then come back to you. So what we have to remind ourselves is Annas was the former high priest. Now that should cause some flags to go off because the Jewish people didn't have former high priest. You served in that position until you died, or I guess incapacitated in some way. And yet Annas is not incapacitated, but he is the former high priest. And the reason why he is the former high priest is because the children of Israel, the Jewish people, they were under the occupation of the Roman government. And so the Roman government also spoke into uh, the decision-making as to who the high priest was going to be. And we know, Josephus tells us, they didn't really like Annas. He wasn't a company man. He didn't do things the way they want. And so they push Annas out. And they bring in Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. It still stays sort of in the family. But now we have Caiaphas, who's a little more willing, a younger guy, knows how to read the tea leaves. He's willing to work with the Roman government a little bit. But it seems as if Annas may not be the official high priest, 
but he's still the guy calling the shots. And so, you know, he's behind the scene controlling his son-in-law. And so they bring Jesus to Annas, and they have a trial there before Annas. Then Matthew picks up where they send him to his second trial. Jesus will experience in these next 10 hours or so, he will experience six different trials, three before religious leaders, three before uh, political leaders. And ultimately, it's the political leaders that will sentence him to death. And so what we have here in Matthew is actually the second trial. Now, it's nighttime. And it speaks to the fact that there are a whole host of irregularities involving these trials that I want to draw your attention to. First is the timing of the trial. So Jesus is arrested. Ten minutes later, he's standing trial before Annas. Hour after that, he's standing trial before Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin, who was the ruling body of the Jewish people, 70 men made up the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin had, and they were sort of loaned power, so to speak, by the Roman government. They said, all right, you can be in charge of these things or whatever. And remember, they weren't allowed to execute a person. So they had to go ask permission for Jesus to be executed. Had the Sanhedrin been allowed to execute a person, they would have stoned Jesus. That was the way Jews were killed. But since they didn't have permission, they had to ask permission and essentially deliver Jesus to the Romans. And the Romans' method of execution was crucifixion. And that's why Jesus is crucified and not stoned. Um, And so the Sanhedrin had a limited amount of power that was entrusted to them. And they came up with all sorts of rules. That's good. Laws that they put down on the book for how things were supposed to operate. One of those laws was this, that an accused person has this period of time before they can actually stand trial. Now, I don't know what the period of time was. Let's just say it was a full day. I know it wasn't an hour. It wasn't 10 minutes. I know that. Let's just say it was a full day. The purpose of it was was to sort of prepare your defense. All right, you're going to be tried. This is what we're going to try you on. Take a day, take a week, whatever. Prepare your defense. They don't afford Jesus that privilege, so they violate their own rules. Second one is a trial could not take place at nighttime. And yet Jesus is in the middle of the night. It's like midnight when he has his first trial. It's a couple hours later when he has his second trial. And so they violated that particular uh, standard as well. A third one is is that the trials uh, were to take place at the temple. And these are taking place in people's private homes and things like that. So they violated another one. A fourth one is No trials were to take place during the week of a feast or during the time of a feast. Here now, you are on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. And so they should have waited seven full days until the feast was over, but they don't. And so they violate that particular rule, their own rule. Their standards that were put in place for accepting witnesses was completely thrown out. Instead, they went looking for false witnesses. And each false witness would come in, and none of them could get their stories to collaborate. The penalty for bearing false witness was to be executed. And these guys, instead of getting in trouble in any way, are just kind of told to leave and more people are are brought in. So there's multiple irregularities that are happening in this particular one. Perhaps the most significant is that the Sanhedrin was supposed to act as the jury. Instead, they act as both the jury and the prosecutor. And it's not hard to win a case when you're both the prosecutor and the jury. And so Jesus essentially doesn't have a chance here before these particular guys. They're violating all of their own rules. And so as we read in verse 58, the soldiers lead Jesus to Caiaphas' house. 
And then we learn about Peter. It says, now Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So that that gives the impression that Peter is following along. He comes to the gate, waits there for a moment. Then he goes through the gate and he's in there. But the reality is we learn from the other gospels is that he can't get in. And it's not until John, one of the other apostles, who's known to the family that owns the house, that John says, hey, let my buddy in as well. And so he's outside of the gate for a little while. Then he will eventually make, him, or make his way into that courtyard. And that's great. Wow, everybody else ran for their lives. But Peter came back. We learned that one of the disciples, Mark, ran for his life, and they grabbed onto his cloak, and he ran away naked. Everyone's running for their lives. And so here's Peter coming back being in the vicinity of things. But notice a key phrase there. It says that Peter was following him at a distance. And may I say that is always a bad place for a follower of Christ to be, to to try to follow Jesus from a distance. That there's sort of this idea that, you know what, I can stay over here. As long as I can see way out on the horizon, that little dot, and I know that that's Jesus, I'll always know where I can go back and I can follow him but I can follow him here at a distance. I can hang out with the others. I can fit in with the others. I can get comfortable with the others. I can warm myself by the fire with the others. I'll follow Jesus at a distance. It's a bad place to be because you're setting yourself up for a fall. And so here you have Peter. He's certainly not willing to abandon the Lord, but he so much wants to fit in with the others as well. Again, as long as I can see Jesus off in the distance, we reason to ourselves, we'll be okay. Now, sometimes new believers will sort of, they just want to cut to the chase. All right, I'm a Christian. This whole walk with Jesus thing, would you do me a favor, Pastor? Would you just write down the million things I need to do and not do, and I'll just take that list and memorize it, and I'll follow it? And a lot of we've been there, you know, just give me the list of things I need to do and not do, and I'll follow those rules. Well, the problem is this. We're inevitably going to miss something that we don't, we don't put on there. I didn't know I needed to tell you you can't kill kittens. I didn't write it down. What are you doing killing kittens? You know, we're going to miss something that we don't put down there on the list. And so we don't tell people lists of things that they should do and shouldn't do. What we say to people is this. Get as close to Jesus as you can. Get as close to Jesus as you can because it's nearness to Jesus that will keep you from doing anything we would put on a list somewhere else anyway. It's nearness to Jesus. So practice his presence. Get into his word. Pray. Fellowship with other believers that are practicing his presence. Talk these things out. Learn to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit. Learn to discern what it means when you're wrestling with something and it's no longer comfortable and how to confess that and put it out and not walk in that particular way. It's nearness to Christ that keeps us on track with Christ. And so here's Peter. He's trying to follow the Lord from a distance. He's trying to fit in. He's trying to go unnoticed. And he sits here in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house, warming himself with the guards by the fire, the very guards that arrested his Lord. Now, it's, again, it's interesting. If you piece together each of the Gospels and you learn about all that's going on that particular evening that Matthew doesn't give us each, and it's easy to do that. Just go to the end, essentially, of, of Mark and Luke and John and read you know, the paragraph or two that are there about this, and you can begin to piece it all together. One of the things that we see going on with Peter, it seems as if there's this progression 
toward what's going to happen in a few minutes. I don't want to ruin the story for you. But it seems there's this progression. Maybe a better word is a digression. Because initially, Peter comes and he's standing at the gate. And he can't get into all that's going on there where Jesus is about to be mocked and brutalized. And he's sort of standing outside of it. Then he takes, he's allowed to come in. Now he's standing in the courtyard. Then he's standing over by the fire. Then he's sitting down over by the fire. You see sort of this digression? He's fitting in now with the crowd. He's quite comfortable there in the crowd. And that's what following the Lord at a distance does. It anesthetizes us to all that is going around us, the influences that are taking place around us. It, ca- it gradually causes us not to feel it anymore. And before long, we find ourselves in the midst of it. And Peter is about to discover this lesson in a very, very hard way. And so there's a sort of a break in 59. There's, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, this is happening over here. And then when we come, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Back at the ranch? Yeah, okay. Some young people are like, What's he, what ranch, Mom? What are we talking about? There's a ranch here. So verse 64, we'll pick up with what's going on with Peter. I believe it is verse 64. Uh, and so... You'll have to come back next week to find out what happens with Peter, who is left off warming himself by the fire. Okay, friends? Not a, cat, not a real exciting ending, but hopefully you'll be back next week to find out what happens. Let me pray for us, guys. Father, we could look at this and we could essentially say, man, that Peter, can you believe him? But I think the reality is all of us recognize we wouldn't even been there where Peter was. And if we were, many of us, we've essentially done the same thing. We've fallen asleep on the Lord when we were asked to watch and pray. We've denied the Lord when we felt a threat was coming against us. And we've done so multiple times even, as we're going to see with Peter. And so, Father, we don't, we don't look at this with hearts that judge. Lord, we look at this with hearts that want to learn a lesson to learn the hard lesson that Peter learned without having to go through it ourselves. And so, Father, I do pray for our hearts, Lord, that you will have used today's word to reveal some things to us, to put your finger on some areas of our lives. Lord, perhaps there's many of us in this room that had sort of Peter moments this, this week where we were confident in ourselves and nevertheless we denied you in, in the face of others or we found ourselves doing some things that we would have we swore to ourselves we would never do. And so, Lord, I just pray this week that you would bring your grace, this, this day, this moment, you'd bring your grace, your mercy. You'd bring us to the point of repentance. We confess our sins, and, Lord, you'd wash us and cleanse us, and we walk out of here, Lord, sort of in, the, uh, in your grace. And, Lord, uh, it's good to know you. And I pray for us this week, Lord, that your presence would be very real to each of us in this room. Lord, that our times in your word would be rich and fruitful. Lord, that you'd minister. Father, you'd bless our fellowship with other believers, people we come in contact with, work, school, neighbors, our spouses, or friends, or kids, whatever it may be. And Lord, that the dialogue would be uplifting and that you'd fill us with your presence even in those times, Lord, and that the joy of our salvation would overwhelm us. We believe that's a prayer according to your will, and we ask that you would answer it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.